Uh, very occasionally, uh, I will get a phone call from a person I've never met uh, wanting me to meet with their dying relative in hospital and perform, uh, as they often say, the last rites, or to simply say a prayer with them before they die. This never happened to me before I became a minister in the church. It happens to me now. Not often. About four times, I think, in the last seven years of being in ministry here in Emerald. So like I say, not a lot. And part of that, part of the reason it's not very often is probably because I'm a Presbyterian minister. A lot of people don't even know the Presbyterian Church exists. Uh, and even of those who do know that the Presbyterian Church exists, they don't necessarily know how to spell it for Google. Uh, I suspect clergy of other denominations like probably especially the Catholic Church would get those sorts of calls a lot more often than I do. So although it's comparatively rare, uh, for me at least, it does still sort of speak, doesn't it, to the fact that at the point of death there are people out there or at least their family members who want some peace with God at that crucial juncture. They feel that at the point of death you are at a meeting place where you are about to uh, come before God. Uh, and you would hope that someone uh, might be able to help you and give you some peace at that, type of, at that place of anxiety uh, between uh, man and God. And not only do these people want peace with God, there is an impression that the peace they want will be best mediated through a minister of religion. This is a, it's, it's a different level of peace that they can't quite get just for themselves, but that uh, they would need uh, a minister or a, or a prayer spoken by someone else, someone perhaps higher, maybe a little bit closer to God. Uh, even I've noticed a, a general trend ever since I became, began studying for ministry, uh, and, and it's continued on, that if I'm in a shared social group and someone says we should say grace... I'm the one who gets asked to say grace because I'm the one apparently most qualified and maybe a little bit closer to the man. Uh, anyway, very occasionally, uh, yes, and so uh, you might have noticed that in our two short readings from Hebrews today, uh, the word priest, it appeared seven times in the readings that we did, but in fact, in the chapters we're covering today, from the end of chapter four to the end of chapter seven, just over three chapters, the word priest is, or, or something like it, is written 25 times. It's a big deal in there. It's thick and fast. It's an obvious theme and when the author of the book of Hebrews starts this uh, sort of banging on about priests, he is speaking about something very dear to the hearts of the Hebrew people that he's writing to. Remember this is in the decades uh, after Christ, so Jesus is known, uh, but the people, the audience he's speaking to are people who have mainly come to Christ uh, through uh, the Jewish religion first. Uh, and, uh, and so the, their holy book, their text, is the Old Testament, much the same as ours, uh, but they have on this, uh, this, the Messiah has come, Jesus, and they're trying to make sense of how it all works. As well as the fact that in, in the period that uh, it's been written, uh, these people who had once been Jews and had now become Christians were being persecuted by the Jews for having abandoned uh, the, the true God. Uh, and so, uh, and that persecution actually is, is often a draw card back in to the old faith. Uh, there, there's fear and there's loneliness and isolation that comes from, uh, from, uh, from moving in, in or on to a new faith. 
Uh, and so uh, the temptation was to, was to go back. And lay it on top of this now, by this time, the Romans were starting to pay attention too, and they weren't pleased with the Christians, and they were treating Christians as scapegoats. And so there was state-led persecution as well, of a very vicious kind. Uh, and so again, temptation again, uh, whereas the Jewish people had some sort of free pass at this time from, from the Roman authorities, uh, the Christians were, they were being pushed to the outer. So again, if we could, you know, if we could just you know, cross our fingers a little bit and, uh, and tweak things here and there so that we could become identified again mainly with the Jews, then, may, then that's a temptation, you can see, uh, in that context. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church, we don't use the word priest particularly. Uh, we use it when it appears in Scripture, uh, but we tend to use of clergy or, or people uh, in, in leadership in the church, elders or ministers. Uh, even though the words for minister and priest through various languages trace back to similar roots. But for me, the word priest has some, priest has some connotations that I, I'm quite happy to avoid. So for starters, the word priest is strongly associated, I, I gather you would see this as well, strongly associated primarily with the Catholic Church. Uh, some of our differences with the Catholic Church are really quite important. Uh, for many people, the one thing they know about Catholic priests is that a Catholic priest is not allowed to marry. Uh, and this has led to confusion for me in interactions with other people sometimes. When I began training for ministry, I was in my mid-twenties, I wasn't yet married, and some people I met were horrified on my behalf that I may be signing up to a lifetime of celibacy, doomed, uh, and since being married and having kids, it's not completely uncommon for me to have to explain to new people that I meet uh, that, uh, that, yes, it's okay in my faith for a minister to be married and to have children. Because for a lot of people, their only contact with the church is through their Catholic schooling and the priests that they knew through there. But there's another reason I'm happy to avoid the language of priest uh, in the Presbyterian church is also... Um, uh, stylistically, at least for me, the word priest feels like a word that's heavy with deep religious imagery. It's a bit sombre, it's a bit serious, and particularly when it's associated with other religions, uh, and, and this is important for today's reading. The office of priest is often associated with the idea of one who offers sacrifices. So you can imagine an ancient Jewish priest cutting up bulls and sheep on altars, or even pagan priests in garish robes uh, uttering incantations while they spill blood and stand at this anxious intersection between mankind and the gods. And the reason it's nice avoiding associating the word priest with my role specifically is because of the two main threads of teaching in the New Testament about priests. Uh, and these two main threads will seem almost opposite. The New Testament teaches these two things about priests. Jesus is a priest forever and the only priest you need. And second, we are all priests. What? So in Jesus, there's now no more priests, and also we are all priests. But uh, have a look. These are, they seem to contradict each other, uh, but one thing at least that they have in common is this, that under Christ, there is now no need for the priestly office, as it stands, because the work of the priestly office has been done, at least in the traditional Jewish or Hebrew sense. Uh, so let me help you with the paradox by showing a couple of verses. Jesus is priest forever, the only priest you need. From Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, we didn't get this far in our reading, but it says of Jesus that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And uh, even more so as you read the whole chapter, you'll see Jesus is priest forever, the only priest you need. But then also later on in the New Testament, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Uh, This is actually borrowing language from the Old Testament as well, by the way. Uh, A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So we're not quite technically all priests, uh, because we don't hold that office of priesthood, but we now no longer have any need for that priestly office. And so you can sort of imagine that this office of priestliness now has become uh, uh, unnecessary and obsolete through Christ. And so although the need to still meet with God is there, the office uh, has become so flattened that it's accessible to all and everyone. I hope that sort of makes sense. Uh, And so... Uh, and so uh, we can now approach, approach God's throne of grace boldly and without fear because the way is open. It's been made open through Christ uh, and we uh, are invited uh, to, to be there without any further mediation on a human level. So I am one of you. I'm not closer or nearer. I've got a different role. I've been appointed, uh, but, I, but he doesn't hear my prayers louder than yours. So can I address quickly an elephant in the room? We're trying to cover three chapters of the Bible today. None of them are particularly easy chapters. They're not. Uh, And I've already been talking for uh, not quite 10 minutes. And we have lunch to get to after the service. uh, And I'm not going to keep you here all day. My goal today is not to go in detail through every word of chapters 5, 6 and 7. In fact, chapter 6 is going to get a pretty sparse summary. Maybe we'll revisit it later, but it sort of falls in the middle of chapters 5 and 7 that are making the same argument, Uh, and so I I want to be able to keep that momentum. Here's my goal. My goal today is to lead you to the text in such a way uh, that I hope, if you were to read it for yourself, you may, one, feel bombarded with a lot of words and ideas that you struggle to hold and order in your head all at once. Okay, that will happen if you read it for yourself. Uh, But two, after today, I hope that you could read all of that and go, yes, even if I don't get every piece of it, I think I get the point. Okay, if you can get the point, then you can start going back and seeing how each piece makes the same point. And in a way, I've already given you the point. The point uh, is sort of up here, really that first one. Jesus is priest forever, the only priest you need. Jesus is priest forever, the only priest you need. Uh, In chapter 4, and and in a way, I gave you the point last week while we were talking about another subject. Remember I said there's sort of a pattern in the book of Hebrews? So in chapter 4, the author keeps repeating the word rest. uh, And I told you that the pattern of the book of Hebrews is that the author will pick up a theme from the Old Testament uh, that meant a lot to the Jewish or the Hebrew people, as they were traditionally called, and the author will play around with that theme or idea and show how that Old Testament thing had always been God's way of symbolising and pointing uh, to this long, hoped-for and needed reality that was made more true in Jesus Christ and permanent in Jesus Christ. And so, from chapter 4, in the case of rest... Uh, While the Hebrews lived in the promised land, which they referred to as their place of rest, and while they enjoyed a rhythm of weekly 24-hour Sabbath rest, Jesus would bring true everlasting rest at God's side. 
Okay, And so then in the chapters that we're canvassing today, the theme isn't rest, but it's priests. And the message is that while priests in the Old Testament times offered a kind of peace between mankind and God, an interface, because they offered sacrifices to please God on behalf of the people, and because they prayed and interceded for the people before God, well, Jesus has now done all of those things more perfectly and more fully to such an extreme extent that he has even abolished the office of the priesthood and given us all the peace and benefits as if we were priests, although we're not in the office of priests. We can be close to God ourselves because of Christ and it's done. And we don't have to march through a man or go through Google to find the one who will give us access to God. So let me summarise the chapters very loosely. 5, 6 and 7. Chapter 5, or really starting from the end of chapter 4, is showing how Jesus is a legitimate priest in the Old Testament sense. Jesus is a legitimate priest. He is a man, uh, flesh and blood. He isn't self-appointed, but he's appointed from above. uh, And he offers reverent and fervent prayers to God on behalf of the people so that God would save them. Jesus is a legitimate priest in the sense of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Okay? And that's going to be important to a Hebrew person who's very attached to the idea of this priesthood. Then at the end of chapter 5 and spilling into chapter 6, the author pauses to say something like this, and I paraphrase. I desperately want to build on what I've just said, but I fear you are too lazy and immature to grasp what I'm about to say. But although you're a bit sloppy, I have confidence in God's grace that he is still at work in you, and so I'm going to try and I'm going to say it anyway. And then in chapter 7, he does it. I think you'll find that's a half-decent paraphrase of chapter 6, if you read it for yourself. And so in chapter 7, he goes on to say, building on chapter 5, not only is uh, Jesus a legitimate priest in the Old Testament Levitical sense, uh, but he is even better than the Old Testament priests in the Melchizedek sense. That's a fun word to say, and we'll talk a bit about it. So... Uh, At the beginning of all this, at the outset, chapter 4, verse 14, makes this really bold claim. This is where we ended last week, chapter 4, 14. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, the Son of God, etc. He says Jesus is our great high priest, and that is a bold claim. It's a big claim, because remember, he's not talking directly to us, people who are basically ignorant or maybe even bored or maybe even mildly put off by the thought of priests and their funny clothes. He's talking to a set of Hebrew people who are devout followers, who have strong ties, family, traditional, religious ties to the priesthood and who have been trained since birth and for generations beforehand to be thankful for the priests who make sacrifices and prayers on your behalf, to, to even be taught that without those priests and without that intercession, maybe there is, there is no hope for me when I stand before God one day. There's that anxious intersection between man and the gods, God. And the priest stands in that gap and we are thankful for that priest. You take away the priesthood and you risk taking away their hope. It's a fearful thing, like when the temple curtain tore when Jesus was crucified. There's this barrier uh, that kept the people safe from this holy presence of God was gone and that would have been a scary thought. 
But the author isn't exactly taking away the priesthood, or at least not yet in chapters 4 and 5. He's adding to the priesthood. He's saying, okay, all those priests that you know of, legitimate priests, they are. But there's one more name to the list, and it's Jesus Christ. He's telling them that Jesus is more than a great man or a powerful teacher. They've already received him as their Lord and their Saviour and the Messiah, the King. But now they're being told to think of Jesus in a new way as a priest. And this is a, this is a new claim in Hebrews, that Jesus is priest. And so to make such a big claim to a group of people who are already heavily invested and schooled on the priesthood, he's going to have to justify that claim. You can't just say it. He's not going to you know, just whisk this by them and, and they'll go, oh yeah, okay, Jesus is a priest too. No, they know too well what priesthood involves and they know that in their categories, Jesus doesn't actually really quite qualify. But he's saying, no, he does. And he justifies it on a few grounds. So, the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 5. A priest must be a man. Not man as opposed to woman, although they were men, but primarily the emphasis here is a human man, a person. Someone who, uh, who intercedes on behalf of men, humans, to God. Uh, still in verse 1, this role uh, is to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. I've just read from verse 1 there. Uh, um, so this is chapter 5. Every high priest chosen from among men, among men, remember he's a man, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. It must be a man who acts on behalf of men. And what he does as he acts is uh, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's chapter 5, verse 1. And that's the first two points up there. Uh, A priest also, because he's a man, by virtue of being a man, knows weakness. Because he knows what it is to get tired at the end of the day and hungry and then tired again after you've eaten and, and, and also to be tempted with sin. And so uh, a priest, being a human, sharing our weakness, has a, has a, a, a unique uh, empathetic insight into what, uh, into what our life is like. And that's important. That's essential to the priesthood. It can't be an angel, like back in Hebrews chapter 1. It must be a man, a real man. And that's the strength. Now, we also men, know men can be very arrogant uh, and look down on people and not appreciate shared weaknesses. Uh, but... He's talking about, you know, a priesthood at its best is a a humble priesthood, a a people with empathy and understanding of what it is like to be real and down to earth. Uh, Because he is an ordinary man, in verse 3, he must first make sacrifices for his own sins before he can make those sacrifices from verse 1 on behalf of the people. So there were two layers, they would sacrifice for themselves and then they would sacrifice for the people. Uh, And verse 4, you don't just declare yourself to be a priest, you have to be appointed. And the point is, uh, that he makes throughout this chapter then, is that Jesus fits four out of five. And that's pretty good. Uh, But there's a reason why uh, number four, which he doesn't fit, uh, is kind of okay and kind of better. So here's the thing. Uh, The author actually picks up where he left off. In verses 5 and 6, he quotes a couple of prophecies from the Old Testament, but also referenced the times when God spoke to Jesus from heaven... In the, hearing other, in the hearing of other witnesses to say, you are my son whom I love. So, while a priest must be appointed by another, Jesus was appointed by another. In verse 7, it says, Christ did not exalt himself. Uh, it was spoken of by God. Uh, and then going back up to the top, but still in verse 7, it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
no, sorry. It says he talk, it talks about Jesus living in the days of his flesh. So Jesus was a man and a priest needs to be a man, a real man, not just a half man, a real man. Uh, still in verse 7, it says Jesus offered up pr- prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So on that second point, Jesus didn't stand in the temple making sacrifices, but even God in the Old Testament said that he didn't love sacrifices nearly as much as he loved a truly pure and contrite heart and a sincere heart of prayer. And Jesus did that. You would have to say Jesus offered all of this on behalf of the people. So Jesus is a true priest and functioned as such. Verse 8 talks about Jesus' suffering. Jesus knows what it is to experience weakness. He can be an empathetic priest. Uh, And the exception to all of this is that fourth one that I said. That make, this makes Jesus actually better than the other priests. Because although the other priests had to offer sacrifices on, uh, on behalf of themselves first, before they could go and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people's sins, Jesus uh, gets a free pass to sort of skip that step because he's perfect. That actually makes him, that doesn't make him less of a priest, that makes him more of a priest, a better one than the others. Uh, because in all of his suffering, Jesus maintained faith and faithfulness without stumbling. He is perfect, so we don't have to be. We can be thankful uh, to the one who took our place. Uh, But to a Hebrew audience, there is still a key thing lacking. Okay, this is all well and good. It's quite persuasive. But not just anyone can be appointed priest. Okay, Jesus fulfills four out of five and the, and, the, and the fifth one, he's even better. Okay, but there's something not right. In their tradition laid down from the Old Testament that these arguments are being drawn from, only men from a particular tribe could be priests, from the tribe of Levi. And Jesus wasn't from that tribe. Everyone knew Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And so as great as he is in all these respects... He can't function in any real, true or meaningful way as a priest because he is not from Levi. He's not a Levite. So all of this stuff that's been said about the priests is true of Levitical priests. And Jesus isn't from Levi, so he can't do it. Unless, unless there is a precedent for a legitimate non-Levitical priest. Is there in the Old Testament an example of a priest who was legitimately a priest but not from Levi. Okay. Now, there's a bunch of examples in the Old Testament of men who rose up at various times and began acting as priests uh, who weren't from the tribe of Levi. Uh, sometimes they were kings, uh, sometimes they were judges, and every time those things ended in disaster, because these were men who also uh, broke the other rule of they appointed themselves as, you know, as taking on a priestly sort of office. Um, so there's a few examples. Uh, King Saul began acting uh, rogue like a priest um, and, uh, and a few judges as well did, did similar things. But this is the thing that the author is leading towards. He keeps mentioning without explanation this obscure Old Testament quotation that there would be a priest one day forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then at the point of explaining it, at the end of chapter 5, he pauses. And like I said, he pauses as if to say... I'm not sure if you can take this next step. Uh, You're not quite mature enough. You've been lazy and sloppy in your learning. You're you're hanging out in immaturity and there doesn't seem to be any striving among you. 
But trusting God, he pushes on. He pushes on to show that there is precedent in the scriptures for a priest that's not from the tribe of Levi. And that strangely, this non-Levite priest precedent, this non-Levite priest precedent points towards a substantially greater priesthood. Chapter 7 starts by telling a story. Again, I'll paraphrase, though we read this. You might remember, actually, not just from what we read, but from even last term when we were doing Genesis chapter 14. I called then, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, I said, is the most interesting man you've never heard of in the Bible. Uh, In Genesis chapter 14, here's what happens. Abraham has been chosen by God to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham is quite early on in his years of pilgrimage when his nephew Lot is captured by violent kings. Abraham takes up arms with his men, he defeats the kings and rescues Lot. Then, from absolutely nowhere, this mysterious figure just arrives. There's no explanation. We don't know where he comes from, exactly. Uh, We don't know who his family is. And for no obvious reason, Abraham, this great man on the rise, Abraham, the greatest of men in in Genesis, gives this mystery man one-tenth of everything. And it's not really explained, but it's given and we must accept it, that there is something that we don't understand that is mysteriously marvellous about this man. The man of mystery is called Melchizedek. He's called King of Salem, which may be King of Jerusalem. Uh, He is called Priest of God Most High. Priest, our first priest, or our first person who's been called a priest. And at a time... When as far as we can make out from the context of reading Genesis, uh, from the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 11 onwards, Abraham is the only man we know of at this point who is actually following the Lord. But then he meets a priest of the Lord. And it happens, okay? There's not much explanation back then, it just happens. Melchizedek disappears as mysteriously as he arrived. And then the priesthood, as the Hebrews know it, from the tribe of Levi, doesn't get initiated for another 400 plus years. And so we've got this precedent of a priest who's not from the tribe of Levi. In fact, he predates the tribe of Levi. And so the author of Hebrews runs his argument like this, something like this in chapter 7. Abraham was a great man, maybe the greatest. He's up there. And in a sense, Abraham was greater than every Levite priest because the Levite priests are his descendants. At least in that sense, Abraham is greater than the Levite priests because they couldn't have even been there without him. They're, They're like generations down. And yet, Abraham met with another great man, greater even than himself, and he paid him tribute in offering him a tenth of all his wealth. And so this greater man, Melchizedek, if he is greater than Abraham, he must also be greater than the Levites, okay? If Abraham is greater than the Levites and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek must be greater than the Levite priests. In fact, he even runs the argument in verse 9 that the Levite priests, in some sense, were still in Abraham's loins, right? Uh, They were still sort of, they were yet to emerge from his body uh, when Abraham paid tribute to Melchizedek. So, in some sense, uh, these Levitical priests who uh, were, you know, in some way mysteriously present in the body of Abraham, they have also paid tribute to to Melchizedek. That's the the argument in verse 9-ish of chapter 7. Um, And so, uh, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Melchizedek must also be greater than the Levites. And so, there is a greater priest appointed by God apart from the genealogy and family line. There is a precedent 
for a great high priest who is greater than the Levites and not from the Levites. And Jesus fits the bill as well. Later on in the Psalms of King David, uh, King David seems to prophesy that another priest of this Melchizedekian sort of ilk would come again. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A priest who derives his status from God, not from family line or his ancestors. And then the author of Hebrews argues that Jesus is that man. So it's okay for Jesus to be from a different tribe as long as he's been appointed by God, which he was, as long as he ticks all the other boxes, which he does. Uh, since the words of the Old Testament and the prophets and even God's word himself has spoken from heaven to say, Jesus is my son. He is the appointed priest and Hebrews the book of Hebrews is introducing this idea to say well this is this is a Melchizedekian kind of thing he's a very real priest and so in summary and to conclude have a look at those closing verses from chapter 7 verses 26 and 27 yes they are on the screen it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28 says, The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Maybe you've uh, sat in church when you were a child or, or, or even more recently you've uh, done some of the Old Testament stuff that talks about priests and temple sacrifices and thought to yourself, yeah, well, if that was such a big deal back then, why don't we do that now? Well, partly because the temple's gone, so it can't happen anymore. Uh, that, that was pretty crucial. But also, but, but it's okay. It's sad, right? But it's okay that the temple is gone because that anxious intersection between humans and the gods Uh, doesn't need to be anxious because it is us and God mediated by Jesus Christ, the perfect priest who gave himself. And that's what we remembered in the bread and the wine today. He gave his body. We don't offer it again. We do this in remembrance because it's been done once for all. Now, maybe this is completely foreign to you and brand new. It's it's not a way that I I think we're trained to think in our secular frame of, um, of, you know, needing to offer sacrifices to please a God. Uh, in fact, we're, we're sort of more taught that, um, that, well, really, there is no God or, um, or if God is there, he should be nice and gentle enough to just like us as we are and, and not be concerned about things like sin and evil and stuff like that. But the Word of God teaches us to look inward and find in ourselves a person who has sinned and a person who, if it weren't for a mediator, there would be that anxious intersection between us and God. And how can we face him? And we don't need priests, because we have one priest, the one who has done it once and for all. On your deathbed, it is good to have someone pray for you. If you ask me, I will do it. I would love to. It would be an honour. It may even be better, in a sense, for that person to be rec- a recognised leader in the church. It's not because that person has greater access, but uh, because there is a, you know, a nice order to, to have someone who's been appointed to look out for you and shepherd you and care for you in that time. 
Okay, that's good. I'm not at all cynical about being asked to pray for people at that time. Now, we know that God can do great things. One man on the cross died saved as a criminal because he received Christ at the last. However, you will have more assurance yet at that last day if you reach the finish line, the time of your departure, with a clean conscience, having run with endurance, with faith and love. That'll do much better than any one prayer that can happen at the end. But you can do better yet. Because a clean conscience is a pretty hard thing to grab. And all of our consciences are going to be a little bit smudgy at least. All of that powers into nothing compared to the assurance that comes from having Christ as your advocate. Call him a priest if you like. Uh, We don't have to love that language necessarily. It's not necessarily ours, although it's become ours through Scripture as as we adopt Scripture as our rule. Uh, But he's our priest, he's our advocate, he's the one who's gone on our behalf. He has paid your debt in his sacrifice forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to, um, if nothing else, learn. uh, To to learn uh, and understand more deeply your scripture. Uh, We thank you... Uh, We pray and trust that as we learn and focus on your words as truth, that we'll be edified through that process. Uh, Father, we pray particularly that you'll help us to grab hold of the point of this, uh, that in Christ, that intersection between us and yourself is not an anxious one, but one where we can cross boldly over to your throne because of grace, your grace, because of Christ who has taken away our sins once for all acting perfectly as our priest and having pleaded for us uh, with prayers and intercession. We thank you for him. Uh, may we enjoy our, uh, our newfound status as, uh, as enjoying these same priestly privileges, even if we're not uh, in the priestly office. Help us to, uh, to pray and plead on behalf of our friends and our neighbours. Uh, and may we enjoy all the benefits of being with you now and for eternity. Amen.